How about we pray together for our time? God, we thank you that uh, you have a plan for all things. You have a plan for man's redemption, like Jay was saying, that brings us great joy. You have a plan for the end of all things when you will stand in judgment. And you'll bring your children finally home into your kingdom. And you will judge those who never bowed a knee to you in need of grace or mercy. And we thank you that in our lives from day to day, you have a plan, Lord. From the small things that take place to the huge life-altering events that we experience Uh, You are working all of these things together for our good because you love us and because we're your children and we belong to you. And we give you thanks for that. I pray this morning, Father, as we start this new series looking at heartbeats, that we would understand that the church is a body. It's a living organism. It's your precious bride. And at the heart of the church are some things that are central to your heart for humanity and your plan of redemption and your bride, the church. And Father, I just ask that our church would exemplify these things, that we would be a church that has these heartbeats true about it. And we thank you that that's not by our work or our effort, it's through your spirit. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would move. And in particular this morning, Father, regarding this message, I, I just ask that you would uh, humble us and make us receptive to your word. I pray that you would soften our hearts, and I pray that we would simply share in your heart for the mission of the church. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bible with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I know that you're like in the habit of going to 1 John, so sorry to mess with your head like that, but we're not going to be doing that anymore. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. And again, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one off of our table back there. And if you don't know where Titus is, use the index in the beginning of your Bible and that's totally acceptable. But today we're starting a new series here at Maricopa Springs called Heartbeats. And uh, we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at things that are really essential to the life of the church. In scripture, the church is described as the body. It is the body of Christ and Christ is our head. And through the body of Christ flows the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us divine life as the community of Christ. And the point that I want to make as we kind of begin this series is simply that the topics that we're going to discuss over the next five weeks are crucial to the body of Christ in the same way that your heartbeat is crucial to your body. Um, I think it's pretty obvious. If you don't have a heartbeat, you are dead, right? If we were to stop doing these things as a church or fail to do them or or neglect them in the life of our body, our family, our church, then the church dies in the same way a person without a heartbeat dies. And so that's kind of the case that I want to try and make for you over the next couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to talk about the mission of the church. Really, what does the church exist for? 
And I want to claim that the mission of the church is to declare God's message of grace and repentance, teaching people to turn from worldliness to the way of Jesus. Let me say that again. The mission of the church is to declare God's message of grace, teaching people to turn away from worldliness and turn to Jesus, turn to his way. And typically when you hear a sermon on a topic like this, what what is the mission of the church, you end up in Matthew 28. Okay, Matthew 28 is where Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples, go to the ends of the earth, teaching people to observe everything that I've taught you. That's called the Great Commission. But I want to use a different passage this morning from Titus 2 to show you that the mission of the church is not only found in one place in the Bible. The Bible speaks about the mission that Jesus gave to his followers in many places throughout Scripture. Now, the Bible only needs to mention something one time in order for it to be important. We don't need to defend something with multiple instances of it being recorded in Scripture before we understand this is something God has declared and therefore it's important. But the mission of of the church is so central to God's people that it shows up all over in Scripture. Um, I'm not going to go into all of that, but I'll just make a quick case. From the very early pages of your Bible, we see God's unfolding mission to rescue people out of ruin. That God himself is on a rescue mission. And if God is on a rescue mission and we are followers of God, then he invites us into that mission as well. Now, a principle of Bible interpretation that maybe you've not heard before, but I think is important, is that in the Gospels we learn about the story of Jesus— and then in the epistles, so the letters after, the, the, the books after Acts, what we have are commentary or explanation about the life of Jesus and what he taught. So these, those other New Testament books besides the gospel, they offer further explanation regarding what Jesus said so that we can know how to follow in his footsteps. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. And so these other books explain what does following Jesus look like in real terms. So I'm asserting to you now that the verses that we're going to look at here in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 are really some of Paul's commentary to his friend Titus about what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Okay, so Jesus gave the Great Commission, go and make disciples. I think Paul now is offering some explanation of what that looks like in practical terms. So let's read these verses. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. First, I want you to see the command in verse 15. Do you notice it? Declare these things. We as Christians are commanded to declare these things, the things of God. We are to exhort and to rebuke with all authority. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew 28, you know that Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he said, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. This is the same authority that Paul is telling us that we have to declare these things that Jesus gave to his disciples as he commanded them to go and proclaim the hope of the gospel. And Paul tells us as we declare these things, we should let no one disregard us. No one. That means that his instruction here is not just to Christians. It's not just that we are to declare these things to one another in the household of faith or within the church, but we are to declare these things and exhort and rebuke even those who are far from God. Let no one disregard us as we declare this message of hope in Christ. So that means that we need to be on mission, speaking about the grace of God so that everyone hears. God's loving grace. And we can't let the disinterest of the world around us, I don't know if you've had that experience, but that seems to be how I perceive things, that people are just disinterested. But we can't let the disinterest of the world around us keep us from being persistent and bold in this work. We can't be intimidated into being silent because some people are opposed to what we declare. And we cannot let ourselves buy into the lie that the world simply doesn't care. Because as we declare these things, God will bear fruit in people's lives. He will open the ears of some and they will hear. And he will soften the hearts of many and they will receive his message of grace. And even if many do not believe, even if most do not believe, some will. And if even one will, then let us be bold to declare these things. Because God himself is on a mission to redeem a people for his own possession who are then eager to give glory to the God who made them. In praise for the joy and peace and comfort and hope and salvation they've received. So what specifically does the Holy Spirit tell us to declare? Back in verse 11... We are told that we should declare the good news that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, the words grace and salvation don't mean anything unless you've been busted or you need to be rescued. Grace and salvation imply judgment. And our message must be that Christ has, br- has come to bring people salvation because people are under the judgment and wrath of God for their sins. And we need to be honest about this truth. I mean, the gospel really doesn't mean anything if it's not a real rescue plan. And so we need to be bold to be honest about the truth that people are in sin and they need to be cured of their ignorance 
They need to be redeemed out of their hard-heartedness. They need to have their hatred for God undone by his mercy. And if not, then judgment is coming. And we need to be clear about that truth. And the good news of Christianity connects directly to this judgment, okay? Because the Son of God has appeared in order to make atonement for our sins so that in place of judgment we might have love and acceptance, grace and favor. Christ came to offer love in place of wrath, salvation in place of condemnation, purity instead of lawlessness, redemption in place of destruction. That's good news. In John chapter 3, Jesus has that kind of interesting conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And he explains God's message to Nicodemus in some detail. Let me read it for you. It'll probably sound familiar. But Jesus and Nicodemus are talking and Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now hear me loud and clear here. It's a stunning and almost difficult to believe fact that God actually loves the world. God loves the world. He loves the people that he created to fill this world. He loves mankind that he made in his image. He loves you. He loves me. He loves your neighbor, your boss, your coworker. He loves all people from all backgrounds, even people that we would think are beyond hope or redemption or God's love. He loves them. And yes, this world is filled with evil and darkness. We don't Uh, pretend like that's not true, but God has not given up on this world or he would have already destroyed it. It's still in process of redemption. And instead of giving up on the world, God has sent his purified people, that's us, in this age out into the world filled with his redeemed grace and the power of his Holy Spirit as his children zealous to do the good work of being ambassadors for grace and reconciliation in this world that he loves. And we are God's ongoing plan to accomplish his redemption, salvation, ever greater works of redemption as we labor with the Holy Spirit in us to take the light of the gospel out into the darkness of the world. You are God's plan for that work. Now, contrary to what many people believe, this is not merely a message of life after death. This is not like you get this golden ticket to pass through those pearly gates to get into heaven and, you know, you've got your insurance plan for when you die. What we are proclaiming, Paul says here in Titus chapter 2, is a message of grace and salvation that leads people right now in this life to renounce ungodliness and worldliness 
in this present age, today, right now, we're declaring the opportunity to step into godliness. The opportunity for people to be restored to what was lost when man turned, when we turned our backs on God. That's a right relationship with God. That's what we're being restored into as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus who guides us, learning to do what he taught us to do. And we're to go and make disciples who live lives of godliness as we teach them what that looks like, inviting them to walk with us on the path of Jesus that we're already walking. Then verse 13 reminds us that all of this should be taking place while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole thrust of this verse or this idea is to remind us that we can't, uh, while we wait for the return of Jesus, just be idle in our waiting. As believers, that's not okay. We need to train ourselves in greater godliness so that when Christ returns, we're ready to receive him. We recognize him and know him as our Lord. And then we must be active in this work of lifting up the Son of God to an unbelieving world, declaring this message of grace and salvation, and inviting others to participate with us as we follow him. And this is a major part of the good works that Paul mentions in verse 14. Did you see that? That we're supposed to be zealous for good works. And that's a huge piece of it. Now look, we need to think really carefully about this. And, be, and because the, the, the reason we need to think carefully about it is because these issues are not secondary issues within Christianity. This work is not at the outlying place within our faith. This is an absolutely fundamental issue within Christianity. See, I think there are many Christians who believe that they bear no personal responsibility for God's mission. They bear no personal responsibility to share their faith and to declare a message of salvation for all people. That's somebody else's job. It's the pastor's job. It's the person with the gift of evangelism. They're supposed to do that. But I'm telling you that this is at the very heart of what we believe as Christians. That we are called to be on the same mission that God is on. The good works that we're commanded to do and which we must zealously set our hearts to accomplish... They can be boiled down to two very simple things, and I'm sure you know this. The two commands that Jesus said were, of all of God's commands, the greatest. We must love God, and we must love others. Love God and love others is the essence of Christianity. So, because we love God, we must love what God loves, and we must give ourselves to the work of loving others. That's hard work. I'm sure you know. This is the law of Christ. And as followers of Jesus, we're obligated to obey this law, to follow this law as we walk in his footsteps. And what's at stake for us as Christians regarding this mission of the church, it is not minor at all. It is absolutely the core of the gospel. And here's why. Our love for God and our love for others compels us 
to feel a burden and a necessity for this work because that is God's love in us poured out in practice. And we see this demonstrated in the passage you heard from Matthew 25, okay, during our scripture reading. Let me explain it to you. Remember, Jesus said there in that passage in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to call all people into his presence and he's going to separate the sheep on one hand from the goats on the other. That is, he's going to draw out the children of God distinct from those who are enemies of God. And do you remember how he says that he's going to determine which group each person belongs to? He is going to evaluate their works to see if those works flow from his heart of love, to see if they reflect the way that he himself treated people. He's going to look to see who lived a life filled with the Holy Spirit's love for God and love for others. And that will be the distinguishing mark between the sheep and the goats. Those sheep of his whom he accepts, they're the ones who feed the hungry, offer a drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and those who are in prison. And so think about this for a second. I don't think that Jesus here is talking in literal terms. I mean, I think he's speaking figuratively. And I think you get that when he says that he's talking about sheep and goats. Right? He's talking about people and he says that, but he uses sheep and goats as an illustration. And he's speaking spiritually to those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is a reference to people. And so I want you then to consider maybe the spiritual implications of what Jesus is saying here. It's not about food and water and prison visits. It's about something much more than that. When we take up the Christian mission to declare to lost people the salvation of God, we are bringing true spiritual food to those who are starving. Jesus said that he's the bread of life. And so the feeding that we're really supposed to do is to offer people the bread of life, Christ himself. When we invite non-Christians to come to Jesus, we're giving them an invitation to drink the water of life. And Jesus said those who drink this water will never thirst again. When we welcome the stranger, we're offering the gracious hospitality of God to those who are alienated from God, those who are lost and apart from their creator in a faraway land. When we clothe the naked, we're wrapping sinners up in the robes of righteousness that Jesus has given to all of those who call him Lord and Savior. When we visit the spiritually sick, we're telling them about the great physician. Jesus, who said that he came not to heal those who are well because people who are well don't need a doctor. He came as a doctor to visit those who are sick. He came to heal the disease of wickedness that's infected the human heart and set us free from bondage to sin. When we go to those in prison, we don't literally have to go visit those who are in the jail. 
We can simply go to those who are in the prison of their own sin, shackled by that sin, imprisoned by their immorality, and we can tell them there's a way to be free from this. Christ has come to open those prison doors and to set you at liberty. And this is a work of love. It's not our work. It's the work of Jesus, and he left us to do this. And Jesus says, those who are not zealous for, those work, for this work, he calls them goats. He says they're people who see this need all around them, and they don't make any effort to engage in solving the problem. And so I, I want to, I've been praying really hard about this sermon all week. Because I just don't want us to be those kinds of people. And I don't want us to kid ourselves. I don't want you to kid yourself. I don't want me to kid myself. That you can live a life of morality like Titus 2 says. A life of being self-controlled and upright in this present age. But lack Christ's heart for the lost people that he made that he loves, that he died for, and think that you actually share the heart of Christ. I don't know that I said that very well, so let me try and say it a couple of different ways. I mean, if you don't care for the lost and you don't long for their salvation, if you don't declare to a broken world that grace has appeared, if you're not zealous to be about the good works of God's ongoing mission, to seek and save lost people, then I I want you to know, I don't think you know God's love like you should. I think you're just deficient in understanding the depth of God's love for you. And you're not walking in the footsteps of Jesus quite as fully as you think you are. Because one of the burdens that he's placed on his children is that we would declare a message of hope and salvation to a broken world. And I would say that you can be a super moral person, but you're not actually zealous for good works unless you're zealous for those who are far from God to hear a message of hope in Jesus. And if you love God, you're going to love his mission because you share a piece of his heart. And this is his mission. And if you love God, you're going to bring salvation to the lost in the same way that Jesus himself was about bringing salvation to the lost. This is a major piece of what godliness is, I would say. Now, I want to say two important things at this point, okay? The first one is stern. It's more of a hard truth. It's more along the lines of rebuke and exhort, like Titus 2 says. And the second one, I hope, will be a little bit more gracious. But let's do the hard stuff first. The first thing is that if you are sort of pissed off at me right now because I'm hitting this so hard and laying into this with so much intensity and you're sort of angry that I said, if you don't join God's mission in this work, then you don't really share the heart of God, um, then I want to warn you again and exhort and rebuke you again under Christ's authority. And the reason is because your anger is actually just a distraction. Um, what's happening is your sinful flesh 
is formulating some pathetic worldly excuse for why you can't follow Jesus in this way or why you shouldn't have to follow Jesus in this way or why it's not your responsibility to follow Jesus in this way or some defense as to why you do all this other stuff really well and so that exempts you from doing this. Or maybe the other one is that you're formulating the theological response that says, Grady, you're interpreting this passage wrong and so therefore I'm not obligated to do what you say. Well, I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart to convict you of sin. Because if your inner defense attorney is coming out and that's why you're mad then I think the Lord needs to continue to do a work in your heart to show you God's heart is for lost people. That's why you're here, because God's heart is for lost people. Like you were once a lost person, and God's heart was for you, and therefore God saved you. And his heart remains for lost people. And to love Jesus is to obey him, and his commands were that we love God and that we love other people. And because God loves people... God's going to continue this mission of saving them. And that's why the second command is to love our neighbor. And if you treat your neighbor nice and you wave to him and maybe you drop off Christmas cookies and if he's sick, bring him a meal, that's great. Keep doing that. But if you don't ever declare to him, if you do not ever declare to him the message that salvation has come in Jesus Christ, if you don't ever offer him that true spiritual food, the bread of life that is Jesus, then I don't think you've gone far enough in showing your neighbor the love that God wants you to show him. You've not fulfilled that law of Christ to love your neighbor. And so if you're angry at this sermon this morning, I hope that, I hope that rather than find some self-justification that instead you would simply pray for the Holy Spirit to give you some wisdom and discernment. The second thing I want to say is that I'm, I'm really not trying to shame anyone, okay? I actually kind of feel like uh, an alcoholic at an AA meeting. And what I mean by that is I feel like I'm, I'm up here uh, preaching a message that I should be sitting where you are listening to, not preaching. I mean, I think our church has lacked a heart of love for lost people, at least in, a, in an intentional way, okay? I, you, you may personally do this stuff, but I don't know that our church as a body has really lived this out well. And like, you're staring at the founding pastor, so where do the values come from? I would say that that lack of intentionality regarding God's heart for lost people uh, is in some ways a reflection of my leadership. And I'm sorry for that. I want to change that. I want God to change that. Because Scripture says that to whom much has been given, much will be required. And we've been given everything in Christ. Therefore, so much is required of us. We've been given an abundance of God's love. We've been, we've been given His grace and His salvation. We've been given redemption at the greatest price that could possibly be paid. The precious blood of the Son of God. And if we've been given so much, is it too much for God to ask of us this little thing that we would declare that salvation has come for all people? Is it too great a thing if God has loved us so fiercely that we would commit ourselves to zealous works of goodness 
pointing people to the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to think about shame. I want you to think about grace, God's grace for you. I don't want you to think about obligation, like I'm heaping some burden on you. I want you to think about joy. There is so much joy in seeing someone come out of darkness and enter fellowship with Christ. Don't think about the hard-hearted wickedness of our world that hates our Savior. That's true. But instead, think about how hard-hearted and wicked you used to be. And God's arrows of love pierced your heart so that you would come out of that. And God intends to do that with other people that you, at this point, might think are hard-hearted. Don't think about how overwhelming the task is and how much people hate righteousness Think about how much glory God gets when he plucks one sinner out from under his wrath and instead places them in his loving care. Don't think about excuses. Think about the heart of God that loves so freely and so graciously. Don't think about yourself already standing firm on the rock of Christ, but instead look out at that tumultuous sea and notice all the people that are still drowning in their sins far from God and under his wrath. And out of love and pity for them, declare boldly that the Son of God has come into the world to save the world. Stop thinking about yourself. Instead, think about God's command to simply love your neighbor. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. That's not the problem. It's that the workers just aren't doing the work. Okay, so before I close, let me just rattle off a few practical things that you can do to kind of start zealously doing the good work of God. Show hospitality. Invite your neighbor over. And go beyond that. Why don't you say to your neighbor, hey, do you have some kind of faith background? Why don't you tell me about that? And after they've told you about theirs, then you could say, could I have an opportunity to share about my story and tell them about grace I know some people are going back to the offices. You've been working at home. You've been like locked in the closet. But why not take a coworker out for lunch? Why not say, hey, can I buy you lunch today? And go through the same routine. Simply say, tell me a little bit about your story. And then ask them if you can share some of yours. And declare to them that God loves this world and he came to save it. Commit to pray for somebody, but don't use that as an excuse. Pray for them that God would change their heart and pray that God would give you an opportunity. And then the not having an excuse part comes. When the opportunity comes up, be bold and open your mouth and say, you know what, I've been praying for you and I've been praying for this opportunity and let me tell you about Jesus. And then when the Holy Spirit places that on your heart, go through with it after you've prayed. And speak that. Declare these things. That the grace of God has appeared. And that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Take some risks. Maybe there's somebody and you're like, I've already shared it with them. And they said no. And therefore that door is closed. Why not circle back? Why not revisit that with them? Why not say, hey, we talked about that at one point. But life changes all the time. Can we talk about that again? How about this one? Simply change the way that you see the world and change how you think about God's purpose for your life. Shed your unbelief. Maybe this 
process starts for you by going to God in prayer and saying, God, I don't believe that you want to save people. God, I don't believe that you care about my neighbor. God, I don't believe that you've called me into this work. And therefore, help my unbelief. Maybe that's where you need to start. There's a vast ocean of people out here perishing. And we have been tasked with a mission to rescue them. And we've been given all the resources that we need to accomplish that mission. So in conclusion, it's imperative that we get our own heartbeats aligned with God's heartbeat in this regard. We need to become a church on mission. A church that deeply internalizes the mission that Jesus himself was on. This is his mission. And by extension, therefore, it becomes our mission. And churches that fail to live this mission, have you seen them? I've seen them. Eventually, like a person who has no heartbeat, eventually they, their heartbeat is no longer heard either. They die. They cease to be effective or meaningful places where the gospel is being proclaimed. Eventually, they close their doors. And you know why they die? They die because apathy is not godliness. Timothy 2 says that these things have occurred so that we might be godly people. And apathy is not godliness. We are to live godly lives. God is not apathetic. Apathy reeks of self-preservation and self-concern, and it's self-centered. And self-centeredness is a worldly passion. And the grace of God has appeared. It's trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions because we are a people redeemed by God for his own possession, zealous for his mission to save all people. Let's pray. Lord God, I feel so weak and incompetent to have even preached this sermon and to really bring any kind of change in anybody's life. And the truth is, it's not in my power to do that, but it is in your power. And Lord, I love our church. I love the people whose faces I'm looking at this morning. I love the people who I know are tuning in from home. I think this is a a precious church that truly and deeply loves you, that desires to be a refuge in a broken world. But God, I know that we can do more to truly internalize this mission, to have our heart beat in sync with your heart in love for people who are far from you. And so God, I, I simply appeal that you would change us. I appeal to your power and your grace to form us more into the image of Christ. That we too would be on this mission with you. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would do that effective immediately. That we would begin to see your spirit move and hear stories of your change taking place in people's lives. And, and we would find in us a new boldness to declare these things with confidence that this pleases you. So Lord, I simply just ask that you would do this work in Christ's name. Amen.